Well, I suspect some of you have been following some of the news about Kanye West the last few weeks, haven't you? Um, Apparently, from all we can gather, he's been radically saved by God. Now, if that comes as news to you, I would encourage you to check out this podcast where Pastor Adam Tyson walks through his conversion story. Pastor Adam Tyson is the one who's discipling him currently, was one of the ones who firsthand, um, the firsthand knowledge and accounts kind of walks through the story of it. So just check the podcast out. I'm not here to editorialize on the, con- on the conversion. I'm just saying that I'm thankful when anyone goes from I am a God to Jesus is King. Amen, church? Amen. Give God glory. Hallelujah. I also find it quite intriguing that we celebrate conversions of celebrities when the truth is his conversion at its core is just like yours. It's just like mine. In fact, there is a common crossroads to all conversions. It's this. Who are you trusting to give you eternal life? That's the common core question everyone must answer. Whether you're Conway, Kanye West in the 21st century or a rich, influential ruler in the 1st century. That's who we see in Mark chapter 10. So locate that in your Bibles, would you? Mark chapter 10. And I think there are some similarities, no doubt. Between Kanye and this ruler, oh, they're separated by multiple generations, multiple centuries, but both are pretty wealthy, both are pretty influential, both at times, they're young, I guess that's a relative term, right? But they have a lot in common, and you might could say, well, Todd, one apparently is really, really good, I'm not sure that Kanye is really, really good, but I think that actually is the point of this narrative. How good do you have to be to get in? Let's answer that question, because that's at the core of every single biblical conversion. That's the crossroads. What or who are you trusting to gain eternal life? And if it is yourself and how good you are, well, where is that line and how good is good enough? The narrative begins in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Let's read this in a couple of sections, can we? Because one is basically the encounter, that's 17 through about 22, and then from 23 to 31, we have the explanation of it. I'll begin in verse 17, follow with me. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him, and this is speaking of Jesus Christ, he's ministering in these areas, he's serving, he's preaching the gospel, and so this man runs up to him and kneels before him, And asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now the man that's running up to him uh, is a rich young man and he is a man of prominence. We know this because the other gospel accounts have this very same story and they give us different perspectives. And so we know from Luke and from Matthew, he was young, he was a man of prominence, called a ruler, he was also very wealthy. We see some of that in here as well. So this is the man running up and kneeling before Christ. And saying, Rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud and honor your father and mother. 
In other words, he's kind of answering his question, isn't he? But he's picking up on what the guy's saying, because the guy's apparently sized up Jesus, and he thought to himself, that rabbi's better than I am. And so whatever he's done to kind of climb up the, the ladder of goodness, whatever he's done to increase his standing in the pecking order of morality, I want to do that too. So he says, hey, what must I do? To inherit eternal life. Like, apparently you've done something I haven't done yet. What is that? And so Christ kind of goes along with this conversation. And he's not saying, when he says, uh, why do you call me good? He's not saying that he's not good. Jesus Christ is saying that. He's just saying that he can tell the man has already kind of got a system in his mind of how people get right with God. It must be on how good you are. Because you're further along than me, I can tell. What did you do? And so he's kind of playing this game with him, this conversation. List the commandments for him. The man responds in verse 20, remarkably, which, by the way, he would lead the pack in here. Let's just clear up the matter, all right? All these have I kept from my youth. Wow. This is one good dude, all right? Now, I don't know if he actually means he's kept them perfectly or if he means he's kept them, and when he hasn't, he's made sacrifices to cover them. I don't know. All we know is in his mind, externally, He's kept at least five of the commandments. It's pretty remarkable, isn't it? So then Jesus looks at him and says, and he loves him, of course. And so you see the tenderness and compassion of Christ. And he says to him, then here's the one thing you lack. And by the way, the man knew he was lacking something. That's why he came to Jesus, wasn't it? As good as he admitted he was from an external human point of view, he still had this sense that there's a stain I can't get rid of. There's, there's a level I haven't reached. There's still something I have to do. That's why he asked Christ, what can I do to get eternal life? He knew he was missing something. So Christ here just actually admits what the guy knew. He says, you like one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Wow. One more thing to do, right? And actually, Christ isn't giving him one more thing to do. Christ is pulling back the chest cavity of this man's external qualities and goodness and saying, I'm going to attack the internal God of your life, little G God. I'm going to see if you can let go. Watch this. Not of all the bad things you've done, but I'm going to see if you can let go of all the good things you've done. You see, most of us, we love to get rid of our bad things, don't we? We come to the cross, we say, man, Jesus, take my sins. I don't want those attached to me. But can I hold on to the good things? They might, maybe they'll bring me some favor, some credit. Maybe they'll bring me some merit. Christ here is in a, in a unique way saying, I want you to let go of all your good things. All the things you've done to be successful, wealthy, prominent, all those things, you, you quit trusting and leaning on those. Give them away. Follow me. And he makes us a relational question, doesn't he? Like, in other words, trust me, not yourself. It's not what you can do next, but just follow me. And the Bible says that the man was disheartened by this saying, and he went away sorrowful. Do you see the crossroads there? He came to the crossroads of biblical conversion, and he had to ask himself this question, who do I trust to give me eternal life? What I can do? Or this man who says, simply follow him, what he's done. He didn't take the right turn. He was disheartened because he would have to let go of what he was trusting, and he couldn't do that, apparently. 
Bible says he had great possessions. The word there's mega. He had a supersized amount of stuff. And this is really what kept his grip, his, the grip on his heart and caused him to reject Jesus Christ. I like the word sorrowful in verse 22. Here's why. It's the same word used to describe our Lord and Savior when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he knew that he was going to be separated from his father in a little bit. And the Bible says his heart was grieved. It indicates this, this deep separation. Apparently this ruler knew he was going to be separated from this Christ. This really good, in his mind, this good rabbi. And that grieved him, but he could not say no to all of his possessions and yes to Jesus. So that's the encounter. There's so much more we could dig into there. But I don't think that's the real heart of this narrative, by the way. I think the real hinge verse, the part that I think should, should kind of grab us by the neck and cause us to swallow hard, comes a little later. So I want to keep reading. I want you to follow me. Here's the explanation, which really gets uh, just striking. So the disciples and Jesus were now talking, verse 23. And he looked at them and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's not because they have wealth and money in itself is evil. It's because they trust in their money. Are you with me? So let's clear that up. He's not inherently saying, hey, wealth is bad. He's saying if you trust in wealth and you have it as your, your um, um, go-to, if that's what you're trusting in and leaning on, it's difficult to get into the kingdom. Now, you may hear that like, okay, difficult means it's not impossible. It's just extra hard. I think that maybe what the disciples were thinking as well, because they were thinking, hmm, well, if he can't get in, because look how the conversation goes. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, he calls them children. Circle that word, would you? I'll come back to it later. But he says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. And now he's going to explain what he means by difficult. And here's where it gets tough. Here's where the disciples are like, well, how difficult is it, Jesus? I mean, if the best of the bunch can't get in, what are we going to do, right? And by the way, he would have been far better than those disciples externally, outwardly, morally. He kept all the commandments. He was wealthy. He was prominent, influential. And they're thinking, wow, he doesn't get in? And then Jesus explains what he means by difficult. This is staggering. He said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And can we just be frank here? Some folks have tried to explain this away by using cultural uh, locations like a certain point in the gate that's real small. And so it was hard for a camel. It was called like an a, a, a eye gate or some kind of place where a camel could crawl through. It would barely fit. It was difficult. Some have used the word to, to, to say that maybe he's just saying that it's a, it's a hard thing. I think he actually is using language here to describe something that we're coming with. He's just saying it's actually impossible. I think he means what he says. It's like if I said to you, man, you've got a snowball's chance in a hot place. <laughs> you wouldn't think, well, there's a likelihood that the snowball could make it. You wouldn't think that, would you? You'd think what? It's impossible. Snowballs don't survive in hot places. There are no exceptions to that. He's here saying, hey, guys, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, it is impossible for anyone depending on their wealth to say that's what gets them eternal life. 
Because that's what the man asked, remember? What can I do next to get eternal life? He was trusting in what he had done, his riches, his wealth, his prosperity, his influence. And Jesus here makes this staggering statement. It's impossible to get into the kingdom based on what you do. And now the disciples in verse 26 are not just amazed, as it says in verse 24, they are what? Exceedingly astonished. So they've, they, they've escalated their surprise. Like, what? You mean nobody gets in based on how good they are, on their merit, on their worth, or their favor? You mean there's nobody good enough? And so they ask the obvious question. Then who can be saved? So you get some insight into how the disciples are thinking. And this is why I want to come to you pretty honestly here, pretty boldly, and say that it is somewhat natural, although dangerous, for us to... Most of us probably have a little bit in us to thinking, well, my goodness will count for something, won't it? And it takes a work of God to purge that from us. It takes the Holy Spirit to expunge from us any sense that our worth and goodness counts at all. I think even here they're realizing like, wow, if this guy doesn't get in, he had kept all the commandments, at least five of them. He was wealthy. He, would, he was interested. He was curious. Like this guy really, he leads the pack and he doesn't get in. So you can tell in their mind there's this grain of, of thought that, man, surely if you do something good, it's got to count for something, doesn't it? And Jesus here, here's what I think is the hinge verse. He looks at them and he says in verse 27, with man it is impossible that's how difficult it is. It's impossible for a rich person, depending on their wealth, to get to heaven. It's impossible. It won't happen. Watch this. But not with God. Amen, church. Isn't that sweet? What is impossible for men, in other words, gaining eternal life on your own, is actually possible with God. For all things are possible with God. So, the question then, who then can be saved is what they were asking. The answer is this, no one without God, but with God, anyone. So you see what Jesus does here in this text? He takes the whole theory of goodness, of good works, of moral worth, of, of a favor and merit, of earning, and he pretty much squashes it and buries it and says, none of that will ever account or amount to anything with God. It's actually impossible to gain eternal life through anything you do. And that's what the man asked. Remember, what must, verse 20, excuse me, verse 17, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the answer is, there's nothing you can do. If the best of the bunch doesn't get in by his goodness, it's proof positive. It's impossible. But here's the good news. It's possible with God for both poor and rich to be saved. See, here's the crossroads of conversion. Who will you trust to give you eternal life? Now, I want to answer the question here a little bit. Because as we look at the text in this hinge verse, this swing verse, verse 27, we see that something's impossible with man, and yet it's possible with God. Can we ask this question, why and how is that true? Why and how is something impossible with man and yet possible with God? There's got to be an answer to that. 
It's the same person, right? They've got the same riches, same situation. In one scenario, it's impossible for them to be saved. And yet that same person, same riches, same situation, it's actually possible. Why and how is that true? To answer that question, we're going to kind of uh, accent again development week. I want to have John Howe join me for a moment. John, you're right here. John's in uh, Bible college in Minnesota right now. He's grown up here for a few years as a young person. He's gone to college. Uh, and he's, he loves the Lord. And uh, who knows how God's going to use him in ministry. We're not sure if it's pastoring or preaching. We don't know. But you love to preach. And you love the Bible. And so I want to have John on this development week Sunday kind of answer this question. Pressure, pressure, pressure. Right, John? No, I'm kidding you. He's going to do fabulous. Uh, he's going to answer this question. Why and how is this impossible and yet possible? John? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I think the answer to that is who we are necessarily in relation to God and because of what God demands of us, right? Like in verse 18, Jesus tells us that no one is good except God alone. And in that text, I don't think Jesus is making a mountain out of a molehill or exaggerating the point. I think he actually believes that God is good. And not just good in the sense of he submits to some external moral standard, but rather that he himself is the standard of what is good and true. And he demands that standard from us human creatures. And so you have the rich young ruler, right? And he seems like a generally nice guy and a good person. But in the Old Testament, we're told that the greatest commandment is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that the first of these ten commandments is to have no other gods before the one true God. And so Jesus kind of cuts through the heart of his facade and says, go, sell all that you have, follow me. And we see that the rich young ruler really isn't keeping the commandments, and he doesn't meet God's standard of perfection because he doesn't prize Christ over his own wealth and possessions. And I don't think he's an isolated incident here. I mean, the text says that no one is good except God alone. And I think all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, can't claim to have loved God with all of our thoughts, with all of our actions, with every decision we've made, and with all of our uh, possessions. We fall short of his standard. And so man is sinful, and we can't get to God. That's established. But what about God? How is it possible for him to save us? Well, it's not possible in the sense of just God can do anything, so he can save us, right? God's all-powerful, and therefore he can do it. The Bible actually says that there are some things God can't do because they would contradict his perfect nature. For example, Paul tells us that God can't lie because to do so would mean God is unfaithful. And God is faithful and is true and is not going to deceive anybody. God can't learn anything because he already knows everything. He can't die or cease to be because he is immortal and invincible. So, this begs the question, if what verse 18 says is true, if God is good, how can he forgive us? If God is really just and perfect and demands the standard, is he going to, like the corrupt leaders of our day, just sweep your sin under the rug? In the Old Testament, in Proverbs, we're told that he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of these are alike. They're an abomination to God. So how can God forgive us? Well, the answer, it's the Sunday school answer, but it is the best answer, and you Amen. will not find a better one. It's in Jesus Christ. 
You see, even though that the Father is perfectly just, he's also loving. And in that love, he sent his Son into the world. And the Son of God becomes God in the flesh, right? Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, lived a perfect, sinless life and earned for us a righteousness that you and I could never earn. He met God's standard of moral perfection and loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And on the cross, he takes our place. He takes our punishment. He becomes a curse for us. So that sin that we have committed that must be punished by God's justice is laid on Christ, and he suffers the full weight of God's wrath for our sin. So indeed, yes, with man, it is impossible. But with God, even the impossible becomes possible. Amen. Because of Christ. Amen. It reminds me, John, of those four words that we've taught our church for years. Uh, It's really a succinct understanding of the gospel, which you just laid out for us. God, man, Christ responds. In fact, would you all say that with us? God, man, Christ responds. And that's essentially what you were describing, wasn't it? That God is holy, man is not. But Christ took our place and lived our life, died our death, correct? Mm -hmm. And now we're called to respond to not our own goodness, but Christ's perfection. Yeah, thanks, John. You helped me out. I appreciate it so much. Yeah, give him a hand. Thank you. Amen. So at the crossroads of conversion is really this question, who will you trust to give you eternal life? And John's pointed out very clearly to us, there's only one person you can trust because he was God who met the demands of perfection. That's Jesus. And so what we find next in this text is Peter affirming that that's exactly what they've done. Even though they look at this ruler and they're like, man, how can can he not have some chance of getting in? He's the best of the bunch. Peter realizes even the best of the bunch don't get in because they're not perfect. Until you're perfect, and there's only one who's perfect, and that's Jesus, who was God. So Peter realizes this, and he says in verse 28, See, we've left everything and followed you. Now, that may sound boastful, but I don't think Peter here is boasting. I don't think he's saying, Hey, rich young ruler, man, he lost it, but I got it, dude. I got it, Jesus. I'm following you. He's not proud here. I think he's affirming that he actually did what, he asked, what Christ asked of the rich young ruler back in about verse 21, to come and follow me. Do you see the relational, personal thing going on here? That eternal life is found in a person, a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's following him. And Peter here is saying, yes, Jesus, we have done that. We've left our fishing nets, and we have followed you. We're trusting you. We're not trusting what we had or what we have, who we are, our names, or our income, our possessions. We trust you. And Jesus, I think, agrees and in one sense affirms Peter's affirmation in verse 29 by saying to him that, that what they have done in following Jesus, in, in giving up everything for his sake and the sake of the gospel, that it will be worth it both in this age and in the age to come. And I want you to look at the very end of verse 30. Because in the end, what does Peter get? Two words in the verse 30. Say it with me. Eternal life. And what was the rich young ruler seeking in the beginning? Eternal life, remember? And Peter here now is saying, we have followed you, 
And Christ says, yes, you will now in the end receive eternal life. And he says to him, you'll even get rewarded in the, in the immediate. But he adds this phrase, with persecutions. Do you see that? And so he says, Peter, it is worth it both now and later to follow me. And there will be tough times. But I can assure you, Peter, that what that young rich ruler was seeking, eternal life, you have in me in this relationship, not based on your goodness, but in your trust and following me. You see, that's why the Philippian jailer almost asked the very same question, if you think about it, when he said to Paul in Philippi, what must I do to be saved? Recall that? That sounds almost similar to the rich young ruler, right? And what did Paul say back to him? He gave him the first word, which is a trust word. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about trust in a person. It's not about how good you've been, how least bad you've been. It's not about your moral worth or credit or earnings or favor. In other words, you bring nothing to the table, and neither do I, but Jesus brings everything. And biblical conversion occurs when we trust Jesus. Period. That's when the impossible Man being saved actually is possible because God saves us. The very last verse of this narrative, I think, is just a simple way that Christ summarizes what he saw and what he explained. Look at verse 31. Many who are first will be last and the, first, and the last first. In other words, he just gives us a succinct understanding of the upside-down nature of the kingdom. We think that we can get in by being good, but it's actually the opposite. No one gets in by their goodness or they're kept out by their badness. It's all about trust in Jesus. And so just like the rich young ruler looks like he's first in life, the truth is at the end he leaves sorrowful and he's last. But the disciples look like they're last in life. They give away their business. They get left their possessions. But the truth is they're going to get eternal life in the end. And so in Jesus' economy, it's always flipped. Now, With that in mind, I want you to notice a simple contrast that I think helps this whole narrative just come into focus even more so. I have you circle the word children in verse 24. Remember that? Do you know what takes place right before the rich young ruler comes to Christ and kneels down and asks what else he can do to get eternal life? It's Christ engaging with children. And the disciples are trying to keep the children away from Jesus, aren't they? And what does Jesus say? Look back at verses 13, 14, 15, 16. He basically says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. Now watch this next phrase. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Church, listen with every ear you've got. The kingdom of God does not belong to rich young rulers who think they can get in on their own. It belongs to children who know they have nothing to offer. And so when he addresses the Disciples in the middle of this narrative, he says, children. In other words, he's expecting them to take the same posture. And in this society, children were seen as, as almost like property. They were, uh, uh, you know, kind of in the way. This is why the disciples were encouraging the children, like, hey, don't bother Jesus. He's got more important things than you. But Jesus says, you let them come to me. This is the kind of people that the kingdom of God belongs to. And then he says this in verse 15. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, let me just make a couple of corrective statements here. Christ here is not saying that every one of these kids were converted. Do you know that? He's not saying they were baptized as kids. None of that's happening here. All we see is he's using children 
and their inability to bring anything to the equation as an example of the attitude you should have when you come to Christ. That's all he's saying. He's, he's praising and lifting up the, the attitude of children who just, like, I got nothing to offer. I need everything. Every parent here said what? <laughs> I mean, that's kids, right? That's how we come to Christ. And he's saying that's the attitude we have to have when we come to Christ. Now, some of these kids, I'm not saying they weren't converted. But I'm saying here, this is not some proof text that, oh, just bring a child and you can baptize them and that counts. I, I think he's using the words, these, these, these kids as an example. Because he says, for to such belongs, the kingdom of God's like a child. It's an illustration that true conversion occurs when our attitude is like that of a child with nothing to offer. Not like that of a wealthy ruler with credit. So I have to say to you, these, these really go together. And he says to the disciples, you should be like the children. And he calls them children. Don't be like the ruler. This is the contrast in focus here. Watch this. Beggars versus boasters. Children who just, they need you to take care of them. They need what you have. They need your resources. They're not going to make it without a father, a mother. No, no, they need someone to say, I'll take care of you. Boasters are like, hey, I've got this. You can help a little bit, but I'll I bring this and I'll bring that. And, and you know what? There are no boasters who are genuinely converted. There just aren't. Because any amount of boasting... It really corrupts genuine faith. It poisons the blood of Christ, we'll call it. There are no boasters genuinely converted. In fact, let me just show you some verses that would lean into this, and I hope you get a little more uncomfortable here. You feel maybe the, the, the noose of Scripture kind of around your neck in a good way, like, man, I'm cutting off the air here a little bit. Yeah, God wants to cut off any type of pride from us. That would make us trust anything except his son alone. Look at these verses. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talks about how not many mighty are called, not many, um, you know, um, of those who have everything going for them in our eyes. That, that God uses really the lowly. And, and at the end of that, he says, here's why he does that. So that no human being might, what? Boast in the presence of God. How many humans should boast in God's presence? None. There are no rich young rulers who say, hey, I know most of you got saved by God's grace, but I got into my own merit. There aren't any. It's impossible, remember? So nobody gets in by their own merit. Nobody's in the kingdom because of their worth, their works. There is no boasting. We are all beggars. I'm reminded of another verse here in the New Testament. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. In fact, would you read this with me? This is a, a common verse if you've been in church. Maybe this is your first, second time in church, or maybe your first, second month. You've not seen this verse. This is a beautiful verse about God's grace to us. Read with me, would you? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. How many folks get to boast about bringing works to the table? No one. 
Because it's impossible to be saved by anything you do. One more verse to show you about boasting. Galatians 6, 14. Here's where Paul said he would put all of his boasting. He said, far be it from me to boast. Read with me, church. Except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So if you're going to boast, boast in one thing, that Jesus died for you. And I want to remind you of this, and this is what I think the American church needs to wrestle with, and I think the church in Ankeny especially, because it's full of people with beautiful faces, nice clothes, and a perfect address until you get behind their front door. And it's dysfunction, pain, conflict. But on the outside, we want everybody to think we've got it under control. I mean, Ankeny is a city in which everyone's putting their best foot forward. And I think below that is this sense, somehow this is going to count with God. And I want to say to you with an extreme amount of kindness but clarity, it doesn't matter how good you are, it counts zero with God. Nobody earns their way to heaven. Because you see, at the end of the day, we are all sinners. I mean, you can take three swimmers, put them on the coast, whether it's the Atlantic or the Pacific. You could take one who's a former Olympian who could swim miles. You could take one who's just a teenager who may not could swim maybe 500 feet. But if you say, swim to the next continent, it doesn't matter how good they swim, at the end of the day, they're all drowning. Are you with me? They're not making it on their own. So you can stack up all your goodness. At the end of the day, none of us are perfect, and so we all are under the judgment of God. We need someone who's been perfect. And that someone is Jesus Christ. And that's the one we trust and follow. And the the truly converted person is the person that says this. Listen very carefully, church. My badness doesn't keep me out. And my goodness doesn't help me get in. It's all based on. On Jesus. And you see, perhaps in the slums of New York or maybe in the third world country where there's very visible corruption and things like that, the, the bad message rings well. People have tons of things they're trying to get away from. But in Ankeny, you know what needs to be heard? It's that none of your goodness works either. And can I just come to you as your pastor in these closing moments and ask you, Is there a thread of boasting in your testimony? It may have a lot of church lingo. It may have a lot of words that are religious. But if any part of that testimony is like, well, this is what I did, I need to warn you, there is no boasting in God's presence. None. And I would urge you to to examine yourself to see if you are truly in the faith because boasting corrupts faith. It poisons belief. It makes the cross of no effect because we now pollute it with our works. And I've sensed for a number of weeks just this moment in which I've come to you as your pastor and urge you 
you good, moral, upstanding citizens? Have you come to God like a beggar with your hands totally empty, claiming no worth before him? This speaks to me because this is exactly where I lived. I mean, I'll be frank with you. I was a really good kid growing up. I was like Mr. Youth Group, Mr. Church. I had the best parents in the world, godly people. I was in a tremendously great church. And everything going for me on the outside. And I was banking on that. And I'm not sure I even knew it. I don't think I really understood how much I leaned on my, like the pedigree, my actions, my awards, my credit. I was just sure, you know, somewhere God's going to pay attention to kind of what I've stacked up here. But at 14, when God revealed to me by his Holy Spirit, none of that counts for anything. It wasn't a life of crime and drugs and illicit sex. and That's not what I had to run from. I had to run from the noose of good works that would strangle me and send me to hell because I trusted in them. I'm so thankful that God arrested me from the damning nature of self-confidence. And said, Todd, it doesn't matter how good you are. Without me, it's hell. And I remember at 14, just that realization hit me. And just rushing to God to be saved. Watch this. Not from all the bad I was doing, from all the good that I was doing. That's why I resonate with this story. This is not your criminal. This is not your, you know, this is your really good person that, that went away sorrowful because he wanted to boast. He wanted to claim some kind of credit. He thought he could do something. And Jesus here says, there is no way anyone gets into the kingdom based on their own merit, credit, or worth. You've all got to come like children with nothing. We all come like a beggar. We ask God for mercy to save our souls. So I just want to ask you this morning, have you truly been converted? Or are you just a really good moral person who thinks somewhere, surely, God's not going to overlook all the good I've done. These are hard questions. This is a conversation you have in the mirror. I realize that. I, but I need to bring this before you because if this text shows me anything, it shows me this, that even the best of us don't get in without Jesus. And you know what? Our church is full of a lot of really good people, but here's what I'm after. I want the church filled with a bunch of saved people. I love you too much but you think that that being good counts for anything to gain eternal life. It doesn't. I'm not trying to get you to turn into, you know, some most wanting criminal, okay? <laughs> I just want to jar your thinking a bit because I know in good moral standing Ankeny in polite Iowa, we can almost unintentionally start stacking up our credit and thinking, God'll notice that. I want to say to you kindly but clearly, God pays no attention to your credit. 
he gives his full focus to the credit of Christ applied to your account. So come like a beggar and ask God for the mercy that he has for you.